Well, this is the first Sunday in a while that we're not in our discipleship series. We walked through a series on discipleship, but we're starting a brand new one this morning called Titus. We're looking at the book of Titus. So we have a clever name just called Titus, okay? Uh, we're very creative among the pastoral staff. I know you can tell. Um, we're excited to walk through the book of Titus. We have some special things coming this fall that we think Titus is going to set us up to understand or wrap our minds around about what it means to be a healthy church and how God has designed the church to function and some of the earliest commissions for people who are leading the local church. And that's exactly what we see here in the book of Titus. Titus is a book that Paul wrote to a person named Titus who apparently Paul left on the island of Crete. Now, Acts gives us a lot of detail about Paul's missionary journeys, but it doesn't tell us about Paul being on Crete. So we don't know exactly when Paul was on Crete. It could have been after the events of Acts. It could have been in some other times and other ways. But we know Paul somewhere was in Crete. He somehow left Titus there, and he gives him the charge in Titus 1, verse 5. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Put what remained into order. Now, Crete is a pretty big island. So uh, how many churches were there? We don't know exactly. Were they all coming from far apart and considered one big church? Were there pastors and elders in a bunch of towns? Probably so. That's what we seem to learn here in Titus 1. But we do know a few things about Paul and a few things about Titus. And we actually learn a lot of these things that right here in the intro, which is where we'll be this morning. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. In Paul's introductions, don't skim past them. This isn't just a sincerely Paul. Paul, in all of his intros, is going to give a glimpse into the themes that he's going to be expounding on later in his letters. So whenever you see an intro and he says something like, Paul, comma, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. When he writes something like that, don't skim past it to try to get to the meat of the letter. Because he's telling you something about his ministry. He's telling you something about the themes that are on his mind. And he's beginning to write to this individual in Titus, or in other cases, the churches in a certain region. So as we dive into Titus this morning and look at these first four verses, we're going to see themes that are going to come up over and over again over these next 10 plus weeks as we walk through this book. So I want us to notice this morning some of the themes that come up. But as I was thinking about the book of Titus, I was thinking about ministry, I was thinking about uh, the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, and how some of you may be thinking, what does this mean for me? It seems like he wrote this to a church leader. It seems like he wrote this to a pastor. And I'm not that. So what does this mean for me? So I've titled this morning's message, Our Common Calling. Our Common Calling. What is our common calling? Have you ever considered the word calling? I grew up and I heard calling in the context almost always of ministry. Do you feel called to the ministry? So I always thought that there were some people who were called to ministry and some people who weren't. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized that if you know Jesus, you're called to ministry. I'll never forget hearing Al tell the story of uh, the first time he was a lead pastor, a church planner in Metro D.C. And his church was experiencing great growth. And I think it was a newspaper, maybe a newspaper interviewed Al, and, and they asked him, how many ministers do you have at your church? And I think your answer was something like, well, hopefully four or 500. And the newspaper rightfully responded with shock. What? That's, 
That's like the whole size of your church. You're not having much more than that in worship. Like, what do you mean four or 500? Well, I mean, on staff, on paid staff, we've got a handful, but I hope we have four or 500 ministers in the church because everyone who's a church member, everyone who knows Christ ought to be a minister. So if you know Jesus this morning, what is our common calling? I hope Shalford's a church where we don't just have two or three or four or five ministers. But I hope you all see a common calling that we're going to look at here in Titus 1, that your common calling to ministry, our common calling together. So the first point that we'll look at this morning, let me, let me read our text and then we'll, we'll dive in. Titus chapter 1. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we have some scripture journals in the back. On one page, it's the text. On the page next to it is blank lines. You can take notes as you read along and bring that week to week. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. God, this is your word and we're thankful for it. We want to meet you in it and pray that you would change us. So we turn our ears and eyes to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. These first four verses in the original language are actually all one sentence. Talk about a run-on sentence. But here's our first point this morning. Your calling is from God. Your calling is from God. Uh, look at the first little clause Paul writes here. Paul, and look at how he identifies himself. A servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Right off the bat, we see Paul's ministry calling. And he puts it into two categories. I'm a servant and I'm an apostle. Now he's saying, I'm serving one master, and it's God. I'm a servant of God. Now, I serve churches. I serve individuals. Uh, certainly, he served Titus at different times. We have letters to the churches that Paul served. But Paul says, no more and deeper than all of that. I'm a servant of God. And then he says, I'm an apostle, which just means sent one. Somebody who's sent on behalf of another, but in the first century and in the New Testament, there was a special office of apostle, those who had seen the risen and resurrected Lord Jesus, and then who were sent to be a witness and to testify that he really is resurrected and to go help establish the very first churches. And I think when Paul says he's a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, I think Paul is saying right here, I want you to know that God alone is my supreme authority and he is my soul affirmation. Paul is saying right off the bat, my, my calling's from God. It's not from you. You didn't ask me to serve this church in Crete. Titus, you didn't ask me to serve you. But, but I'm doing this on God's behalf because I'm his, he's my supreme authority. And then he's my sole affirmation. I, I'm not waiting to get voted out by you, Titus. I'm not waiting to get overruled by you. I'm not looking for you to say, hey, did I, go, did I do a good job? Did I, did I please you, Titus? Hey, church in Crete, I'd like for you to fill out this anonymous feedback survey to tell me if I've done well. He says, no, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I was sent from him. So Paul, right here, he, he's just a few words into the letter, and we already see his supreme authority and his sole affirmation. But then we've got to ask, who's Titus? Titus is mentioned one time in 2 Timothy, twice in Galatians, and then he's mentioned eight times in 2 Corinthians. 
and then once here in the book of Titus. In 2 Corinthians, we see Paul say some things like this, that Paul's spirit is not at rest because he didn't find Titus where he thought he would, that Titus's later arrival to Paul brought Paul great comfort, and that when Titus had joy, it actually gave Paul joy. And then here in Titus 1, we see that Titus is a ministry partner of Paul because Paul calls him my true child in a common faith. So Titus seems to be a son in the faith, someone who was mentored by Paul. But more than that, he was a trusted friend, a trusted ministry partner. And what we actually see here is that Titus's ministry is an extension of Paul's. So when Paul's writing things about this is my ministry, I am a servant of God, I'm an apostle, my supreme authority is God, my sole affirmation is from God, that extends to Titus as well. And we can assume the same things about Titus. So we can have a better understanding of who Titus was and actually what Titus was called to do by looking at who Paul is and what Paul says his ministry is all about. But the other interesting note to make about Paul and Titus is that they're unlikely candidates to be friends, much less servants of Jesus Christ. See, Paul was a Jew, a Hebrew. He hated and actually killed Christians before his conversion in the book of Acts. He did not know Jesus, did not like followers of Jesus, and went out of his way to persecute and execute followers of this supposed Messiah. Titus, on the other hand, is an uncircumcised Greek. People that didn't associate with Jews at all and then even had a hard time figuring out where they fit in this new body of Christ in the book of Acts. Yet here are two people that on every account should not even be friends, yet are trusted friends and partners in the ministry. And so you see in the ministry of Paul and the friendship of Titus that the only true source of their calling has got to be from God. God alone is their supreme authority and God alone is their sole affirmation. That's really the only explanation for how these two brothers could be friends. And we see it. He's a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus. You say, so what does this mean for me? Well, I was thinking about these points of supreme authority and sole affirmation. I was thinking about the ways in my own life that I've had preconceived notions of what it means to serve God or to be a leader or be in leadership in the church and things that I've built up in my mind that I've said, you've got to look a certain way, act a certain way, be a certain way if you're going to be a leader in God's church. So in high school, my notes literally say, to my shame, I'll share the story that I'm about to share with you. Okay? Carrie and I were dating. And I clearly had a call to ministry, felt like I wanted to pursue ministry. Carrie was on board with that. We were seniors in high school. And you know, when we were seniors in high school, we took a mission trip and we came home. We were getting ready to graduate. We were both going to Kennesaw State University. But I had this call to ministry. And in my mind, I had this, I had a different authority and a different affirmation of what it meant to be in ministry. I was seeking a, a fleshly affirmation. And I sat Carrie down. This is the kind of person I was 10 years ago. And I said, Carrie, I want to be a pastor, but I don't think you're going to be a good pastor's wife. To my shame, I'll tell the story. I know. Horrific. This speaks volumes to Carrie's grace and forgiveness. And I said, I don't think you're going to be a good pastor. See, I thought a pastor's wife needed to come from a certain kind of family, have a certain kind of support system, and look and act a certain kind of way. I was looking for affirmation somewhere totally different than what Scripture says. And God says, would you, would you just stay out of the way and let me write the story? You're not a servant of what other people say you ought to be. You're a servant of me. 
You're not an apostle on behalf of a church that looks a certain way. You're, an apost- you're a sent one from Jesus. Jesus is the one that's affirmed your ministry. Not someone who says a pastor's wife's got to look like that. Not somebody who says your church has to act like that, but you're sent from Jesus. Now, here's the point for us today. God can use anyone. It is all of grace. I don't care if you were born and in church the next week. It shocks me every time Justin and Kristen have a baby, and they're here like two weeks later. Unbelievable. Their kids will be the ones that when we use the illustration of, yeah, I was born, and a couple weeks later I was in church. I mean, that is, that is Audrey and Ava and Luke. So faithful to be here. But it doesn't matter if that's you or if you don't come to know Christ until you're a grown adult. God can use anyone. It takes just as much of God's grace to use either one of those situations. No one's easier for God to use or more difficult for God to use. So you ought not to think that you're disqualified or God would be lucky to have me. The point is God can use anyone. I I was raised under uh, Johnny Hunt my almost entire life. And he would say this, I felt like, almost every week. And this isn't original with him. I've heard other people say this too, but I'll attribute it to him because he's the one I grew up hearing hearing say it. God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. Okay, let that roll around for just a second. God doesn't call, God's not looking for people who already have the resume that can already do the job that's already qualified and equipped. That's not what God does when he calls people. When he calls you, waiting to see that you are equipped to do what he wants you to do. God equips the called. He calls you before you're ready. He calls you when you're not ready. He calls you when you're not looking. He calls you when you have no desire. And you say, I'm so, and I've been having a conversation with someone about church leadership for a couple weeks now. We had a great conversation this morning. He said, I feel so inadequate. And I told him a couple weeks ago, and I thought it again this morning, that's exactly what makes you qualified to serve God's church, that you feel inadequate because your calling is from God. It's not from anyone else. And doesn't this take the pressure off? We only serve one, and it's God. We can say with Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So the first point we see in Titus 1 is that your calling is from God. But the second point we see is that your calling is to God. Notice where he goes after he gives the little aside about who he is. A servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life. When Paul uses a little phrase like for the sake of, he's giving you his purpose, okay? He's saying, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. This is why I have this ministry. So if my calling is from God, if your calling is from God, it's given by God, it's also back to God. The calling that Paul has and the calling we have is to point right back to the God who called us. Now, look at how this spells out. The aim of our calling is Godward, both in this life and the life to come. Notice the four things he mentions. Faith, knowledge, and godliness in this life and hope in the life to come. Faith, knowledge, godliness, and hope. Now, faith doesn't just mean an ongoing faith, although you can't really separate the moment of faith and the life of faith. But what he's trying to paint a picture of here is that we're saved as we enter into a trust-based relationship with Jesus. We place our faith in 
Christ. So he's saying, I'm, I am a servant, I am an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's people. For their fit, that they would come into a relationship with Jesus that is based on their trusting him. But also their knowledge of the truth. We grow in the knowledge of who God is. Truth is a theme that will be picked up and will go all the way through this book. So, so keep track of that word truth. And he's saying, this is why I do ministry for faith, for knowledge of the truth, for godliness. That your real actions would look like God. You see how each of these are God-centered? Faith is trusting him. Knowledge is centered on him. Our actions are looking like him, and then our hope is that we'll be with him forever in hope of eternal life. Now, as I was preparing for the sermon this week, I found a guy actually pastoring in Atlanta, John Anuchequa. And uh, the last name comes from Nigerian family. He's from Texas, but now he's pastoring in Atlanta, planted a church, Cornerstone Church. And he said, when you look at these four things, you need to look at them like ingredients in a recipe. And you look at them like ingredients in a recipe because of this. If you only have one of these, or if you're missing one of these, the recipe's not going to turn out right. So if you only have one, well, that's not a recipe at all. It's just one ingredient. But if you have all the rest and you're missing one of these, you're going to miss something vitally. Now, I'm not a smart enough cook to know what baking soda does, but I'm trusting it does something. Our kids tasted some yesterday. We did some fun activities for Jonathan's birthday, and he said, I already tasted it. It's okay. It doesn't add flavor, I don't, I mean, well, I don't know what it does, but I know it's important because it's in like everything you bake. We need to view these four things like ingredients in a recipe. Now, he, here's, I think, where, where I got with this this week and where I think this could apply to you today. Which of these do you over or underemphasize? Faith. Maybe you look back on a prayer you prayed or a baptism you remember but you don't have any lasting effects of walking with God in your life. Maybe you look back to a moment of faith and you hang on to a date, to an experience at a church, at a VBS, at a camp. Maybe you look back to some time you were baptized as a kid, but from that moment to today, there's no lasting effect of you walking with Jesus and the only ingredient you have of your calling is a moment of faith. Maybe it's knowledge and you're on a constant pursuit to learn more but your actions and your loves and your attitudes do not in any way reflect godliness. Maybe you don't have a moment of even being baptized, but you think you can hold people at bay with the right answers. Maybe all you have is godliness. Maybe that's your only ingredient, that you can do the right thing. Did you know that you can do the right thing and not know God? We call it legalism. It's right behavior without right love and affection and faith. Or you can have hope and not have any others. You say, how could you have hope and not have any others? I, I've seen it many times. You can have hope and none of the others because you think all God is is a get out of hell free card. When I die, oh, there'll be grace for that. When I die, I can do whatever I want now, live it up because I'm gonna die and I've got grace coming. You see how you can have just one of these and it's an ingredient, and, and it's not a recipe. You could over or underemphasize these. See, for faith, we ought to strive to see people rooted and established in faith. I hope this morning you have a trust-based relationship with Jesus where you trust him for your life and your salvation and your joy. But I also hope that faith, this is like reminding me of Peter's epistle, supplement these things with one another. 
but I hope that that faith is supplemented with knowledge that when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, you're not content to never pursue him again, but you want to pursue him and know him. You want to grow in knowledge of who God is. Pick up J.I. Packer's Knowing God, and the first couple chapters will give you a hunger and a taste to know God more. What about godliness? Are your actions marked by a Godward direction? Are you growing in godliness and putting off certain ways of living and putting on other ways of living that reflect who God is and your new life in Christ? Or hope, are you living with a hope that this life is not all there is? But do you see how all of these, faith, knowledge, godliness, and hope, are God-centered? They're, they're all aimed at God. They're Godward. Because your calling is from God, but your calling is also to God. That your whole life would be marked as a Godward direction. Eugene Peterson wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. What is that direction? God that you would be ever moving closer and closer to God, experiencing his presence, knowing him, loving him, being loved by him. So your calling is from God, but your calling is also to God. Let's read on and we'll see point number three is that your calling is secure in God. God calls you. He's the sole authority and affirmation. You're calling us to God to point right back to him that your whole life from faith until eternity is all centered on God. And then third, your calling is secure in God. You see what he says? He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So he's talking about eternal life here. He's, it, but he's talking about more than just that. He's grounding it in God. He grounds eternal life, and he grounds his calling not in something that can be lost, not in something that's fickle, not in something that's a foundation like Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, on sand, that can be washed away. But he grounds all of this in God's character and God's promise. Now, again, the theme is going to be picked up. He says, God who never lies. Now, remember that, because later in Titus 1, we're going we're to see that Cretans, people who live on this island of Crete where Titus is, were infamous liars. So he's already picking at the culture that he's writing to. But he grounds this calling. He grounds the hope of this calling in God's character and God's promise. Now, here, here's what I wanted to pick up on this morning with those two aspects. The Bible is not an encyclopedia. We certainly learn very factual, and it has factual statements in it. I mean, the Bible is inerrant, inspired, absolute truth given from God. But the way God has revealed himself to us is in the context of his promises to us. Now, here's what that means. God really nowhere in Scripture says, here's 10 chapters on a list of attributes that I'm like. Now, you get places where people like Moses say, show me your glory. Who are you, right? Now, who do I say sent me again? And, and you get these aspects of people trying to discern who are you, God, but God has chosen to reveal himself to us in the context of his promises to us. So we actually encounter God not just through 
and encyclopedic entries on his character. We encounter God through his promises to us that we see him be faithful to fulfill time and time again. And then we go from those promises back to the character of God and say, oh, this is what he's like. That's the way the Bible works. That's the way the whole Bible works is it goes from promise to character and then the character points us back to his promises and we see exactly what God is like. But do you see what this is also saying that his plan for redemption goes all the way back to when, before time began? His, his promises that he made before the ages began. Again, this is the context of promise because he's saying this is when the promise was made. You can't go back far enough to find the beginning of it. So what do we learn about his character? God is timeless. God is the uncreated one. The uncaused cause. This is the God we worship, the infinite, eternal God. And how do we know that? Because his promise for our salvation was made before the ages began. And this can comfort us this morning because sin did not take him by surprise. He had a plan to deal with the sin that he knew would come into existence before it ever came. And he knew exactly what he would do. He had the perfect plan. Can you fathom for a minute how unbelievable it is that he could maintain a bloodline for thousands of years so that through a certain people, Jesus would come, live a perfect life, and die in such a way that he would uphold God's holiness and his justice and his righteousness, while at the same time Jesus would be have a foot in our camp. He's not just fully divine, but he's fully human. So he could step in our place. Do you understand how magnificent that plan is? And they say, hey, when sin entered the world, Paul's saying, this did not take God by surprise. Like he went, oh no, what's plan B? God knew that sin would come. And we can trust him because all along he knew that we would need a plan to be rescued and he had a perfect plan of promise to rescue us. And we can know because of this, because it's God who never lies. That's his character. He makes a promise and he keeps it. He's done it for all eternity. What relief that is for us in a season when we don't know who to trust. We've lived through 15 months of conspiracy theories and media spin. And it makes your head turn. Who do I believe? What do I believe? I don't know who to, you can't just say I trust the news. There's 18 angles on the news. You can't just trust an article because someone decided to publish it on a website. You know, I could design a website and write an article today. Doesn't mean it's true. Just means I know how to work the internet. Who do you trust? You trust the latest Facebook viral going around, the article that everybody's posting? Do you trust CNN or Fox? I mean, what side of the aisle do you fall on? Do you trust them if they're coming from California? Well, no, it's got to be political. But what about if it's coming from Alabama? No, it's got to be political. Everything has a spin. Everything has a secret motive, a secret agenda, that, and it makes our heads spin. And I think we tend to handle this in one of two ways. One, Put your head in the sand. I'm just, I'm just going to ignore it. Or two, we find something that we want to believe in already and we latch ourselves to it and never let go and spiral further down that one wing of truth that may have a nugget of truth in it or have started that way at least. But do you know we're in a season where it seems like truth is eroding 
People don't trust the CDC. People don't trust the news. People don't trust Washington. People don't trust police. People don't trust races. People don't trust anyone. But do you know this morning who you can trust? The God who never lies. God is only ever telling you the truth. And we need someone like that in our lives who won't just tell us the truth about the world out there and the bad out there, but who will tell us the truth about the bad in me. Someone who won't pull any punches. Someone who won't sugarcoat it, but who at the same time will provide a remedy for the diagnosis he's getting ready to give us. We need someone who will only ever tell us the truth. And God is that someone. The God who never lies. His character is truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. And the promise he made in ages past that brought to fruition in the person of Jesus. We need a truth teller in our life. And I hope that every other truth in this world that you hold on to, you know, when you put your name beside something that's true, if you claim the name of Jesus, you're also putting Jesus' name next to that truth. Did you know that? Be slower to hit share on Facebook. Consider the name of Christ. Because if we share disinformation about one thing, then when you try to speak up for Jesus, you're going to have a reputation of someone who spreads things that are not true. Consider that. Now, I don't know what Christ would do. And, And to be frank with you, I might lean towards putting my head in the sand because there are so many things that I don't know. But all I do know is that God is truth. And so when I'm evaluating every other truth, I need to draw a line from that to God. And if I don't know, I ought to be content with just saying I don't know. And guess what? The world doesn't need my opinion. You don't even need my opinion on it. It's more important that you have my opinion on this book and the God of this book. Because our calling is secure in God. It cannot fail. Predictions about what's going to happen to a virus will fail. Predictions about an election will fail. Predictions about the job you're promised to get if you just get this four-year degree will fail. Predictions about the stock market will fail. Predictions about your retirement account will fail. It's going to fail. But build your life on a truth that's not going to. Build your life on a calling that is secure in someone who has existed for eternity, never, ever lied, and will always keep his word. Build your life on that. But this frees us because it means our calling is not based on ourselves. If our calling is secure in God, he's the one that called us, he's the one that gave us affirmation to do it, he's the one that makes it secure, the good news is that you can not fail. Not in a prosperity gospel way, like go ask for the most money and the biggest house and the nicest car. But in a sense that if you're pursuing what God tells you to pursue, you can not fail. If you walk in the plan God has for you, you can not fail. It's secure in God. It's good to know that we can depend on him. It's good to know that the same Paul who wrote this wrote 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and 10. That says God's grace is sufficient for him. God's power is made perfect in Paul's weakness. Your weakness does not put God's promise in jeopardy. God knows exactly what he's getting into by meddling his plan with your human frailty. And your human frailty does not jeopardize his perfect plan. 
So we've seen that our calling is from God, it is to God, it is in God, it's secure in God. And the last thing is what our calling is. Your calling is to speak God's word. Look at what Paul says. He says, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, that means revealed it, manifest, revealed it. You're watching the show on Netflix, manifest. They were revealed, they were gone for five years, and they just showed back up. So he says, when it was manifest, when it was revealed in his word, through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. What does that mean? It means that the promise God made in eternity past was revealed in the first century in the person of Jesus. But it wasn't just revealed in Jesus. Jesus' work is perfect and complete and sufficient. But what happened was, God, after Jesus ascended, his perfect plan was to call people to go be witnesses. That's Acts 1.8. You'll be my witnesses. And they went out proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And what happened? People got saved radically, amazingly. People come to know Christ and put their faith in him. And they're doing faith and knowledge and godliness and hope. But as that happens and they're saved, they're not just saved individually. They're brought into a family called the church. So what Paul is saying is that God's promises were manifested in what Jesus did, but then also in my proclamation of what Jesus did. Because it's in the proclamation, it's in the word, it's in the declaring that people hear the good news and respond in faith. It's in God's word, which then we speak and we preach. That people respond in faith. And then it's in that word that churches are created. That's why apostles have such a high place in the New Testament. They're so honored because it was through their word ministry that first century churches are created. Matt Chandler wrote a book years ago called Creatures of the Word. And he's not talking about individuals. He's talking about churches existing around and in and finding their life in the Word of God. Churches are built on God's Word because God's Word makes Christians. God's Word makes Christians. You hear the good news. You hear the story of the promise and how it comes to fruition in Jesus and it begs you to respond in faith. And then as you respond to faith, you're welcomed into a community of Christians called a church. The building is not called the church. We, we go out of our way to call it the church house because there's nothing magical about the building. There's nothing especially holy about the building. We are thankful for the building, thankful that we don't have debt on the building, thankful for the property, thankful we have a place to meet. But what makes the building special is you all who choose to gather here under the name of Christ. And church doesn't mean building, and it actually doesn't even really mean people. It means assembly. So what makes us the church is just not that we put our name on a roll somewhere and never go back, but it's that we regularly attend here together. Now, how does all this relate to what Paul says in Titus chapter 1, verse 3, that he's preaching? Well, his calling was to speak God's word, to go around and, like he says in Romans 16, speak Christ where he's not yet been named. Why? To make Christians, to see people converted to Christ and then form and plant churches. He's saying this is my ministry is to speak the truth. Have I told you that that theme is going to show up? I think we mentioned it three times right here in the opening section. And it will come up over and over again because one of the themes in Titus is that declaring God's word leads to displaying good works. Declaring God's word and Displaying God's word. Declare and display. 
You see it all over Titus. He talks about holding the trustworthy word of truth. Elders have got to be able to hold it. Then he talks about challenging people to be faithful in good works over and over again there in chapter 3. And Paul says, that's my very calling, my calling, and therefore our calling because we're followers of Jesus together. Our common calling is to speak God's word. Our calling today is no different in theme and in principle than that. It's to hold up God's word, to read God's word, to study, to hear God's word, to preach God's word, and sing God's word, share God's word, pray God's word, because in his word is where we meet God. So are you in God's word daily? Do you know it? Carrie and I had an interesting conversation last night as we were going to bed. Uh, well, I think we started talking about our, a backpack, and she said, you know, I've had the same backpack forever because I just carry kid stuff in it. And I said, I, I, said, I, I got to have a good backpack that's not going to mess up my Bible. And that led to bringing your Bible places. And I said, you know, it's interesting. I hear so many people say, you know, open your Bible, open the app, scroll here, do this, do that. And that's, I, I rejoice that the Bible's so accessible. I do. It's, it's amazing that I can be somewhere and just think of something and go, where is that? And Google it and then pull up the Bible app and it's just right there and you got all these versions. It's unreal. People in centuries past dreamed about having that kind of access to Scripture. But I also know this is like a black hole that sucks me in and you can't see the other side. <laughs> I just get sucked into this thing and it's like I am all over the place. So I can look up a verse, I can look up a passage, I can be reminded of a story, but if I'm gonna sit in God's word and do what Psalm 1 says, meditate on it, I need to go, I need to throw this in my backyard if I've got a shot at doing that. Now that's just me. You may not be addicted like I am. You may not be as tempted as I am. But I'll tell you, there's research and data that backs up how tempting it can be to try to do things on your phone with any sort of substance. And you say, Johnny, I, you're a young guy. I thought you are supposed to be into technology. I love technology. I'm just well aware of the dangers of it. Not just dangers of, like, leading you into sin, but of, of leading you to a life, you know, I think C.S. Lewis said, it's not just a life of sin that's, that the evil one will use. It's a life of entertainment that the evil one will use to destroy you. It's a life of doing fun little things over 70, 80 years and looking back and going, none of that mattered. So I, me personally, if I'm going to be in the Word, I've got to put this away. And that's why I've got a, a paper Bible because I can't, I can't click. <laughs> it doesn't double click. There's no search bar at the top. That might not work for you, but here's my point in saying that, sharing my, my experience. What works for you? What does it look like for you at some point every single day to sit in uninterrupted time in God's word? Does it mean you gotta wake up earlier? Go to bed later? Does it mean you have to, it will mean you have to stop doing something. You have to stop looking at something or reading something or listening to something or going somewhere. You gotta slow down. And like John Piper has said, look at the book. 
That doesn't mean you're going to understand it all the first time you crack it open. It's not magical. You're going to have to read it over and over and over and get some helps and ask some questions and bring people into this faith family uh, with you and say, hey, I've been reading this and I just don't get it yet. There's a lot you could just, you can take out your phone to Google Bible reading plans. We'll allow that. I'm just kidding. We'll allow you to do any of it. But look up some Bible reading plans. Find some ways you can systematically walk through God's word with a plan and that plan will help keep you accountable. But do you have a way that every day you're sitting an uninterrupted time in God's word? For me, that looks like early in the morning. I'm just, I'm wired that way. Part of it might be a little legalistic. That's just what I heard growing up. Wake up early and spend time in God's word. But that works for me. Get up before my kids and before Carrie and go sit downstairs and make a cup of coffee and open God's word and say, God, let me behold wondrous things from your law. what Psalm 119 says. And it's not always a lot of time. But I can tell a difference in my day if I've spent time in God's word or if I haven't. I would imagine we'd all be that way. And if our calling is to speak God's word, we can never pass on what we don't possess ourselves. If our common calling is from God and to God and secure in God and to speak God's word, we've got to spend time with God in his word. Now, spending time with God in his word is not because you already love God kind of is. You do it because you want to love him more, but you also come because you go, God, I don't love you right. I don't love you enough. That's like the concept of spiritual formation. You embrace spiritual disciplines because you're not the kind of person you need to be yet, and you know that reading your Bible is not like, man, I've just had a great day. I need to read my Bible. It it could be the opposite, but I hope in this intro, these first four verses, which we see end with Paul talking, saying to Titus, my true child in a common faith, which we've already talked about, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. There is grace and peace as we step into this journey of discovering in the book of Titus what it means to be a a healthy church together. I hope you've caught a glimpse into our common calling, not just mine or not just Al's or Matthew's or Nathan and Jay's as they lead worship or not just the leader's our calling together. You have a calling from God. And that calling is to God that you live a Godward life. That calling is secure. You can never lose your calling. And then your calling is to speak God's word because that's how God does his work. Let the word do the work. And so let's bow our heads and let's pray. We're getting ready to respond to God's word. And today, the first Sunday of the month, we have a chance to do that by taking the Lord's table. If you don't know Jesus, this Lord's table is an opportunity for you to come to know him for the very first time. Now, not, not in the elements. There's nothing we don't believe magical or mystical in the elements, <clears throat> in the cracker and the juice. But the act of taking this cracker reminds us of Christ's broken body. <clears throat> and the act of drinking this little cup of juice is a reminder of the blood Christ shed for us. And he told his very first followers, do this over and over in remembrance of me. And by doing this, Paul says, we'll proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so you all, just like we all have a common common calling to be ministers, get to preach a sermon this morning by taking the Lord's table. By remembering that his body was broken for you. And his blood was shed for you.
And we say it's the Lord's table because it is for him to invite to come and take this. When you take this cracker and juice, what you are saying is, Christ, your body was broken for me. And by faith, I believe that. By faith, I believe that your blood was shed for me to cover my sin, forgive me, cover my shame, give me new life. Now, if you've not taken that step of proclaiming your faith in Christ, then this morning your response is not to come take the Lord's table, but it's to come and receive Jesus by faith this morning. I'd encourage you if you don't know Christ yet, you don't need to come take the table. You need to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus this morning.